All right, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John uh, chapter 10. We're continuing our series this morning uh, through John's Gospel called The Good Shepherd. And uh, if you're new with us, we kind of work our way through sections of Scripture. Uh, we believe that when you keep the, the text in the context, you're, you're able to understand how the whole story fits together. And in fact, uh, we hear from God. God drives the agenda, not uh, the preacher, not the elders, not the culture, uh, not what's going on in the world, but, but the agenda is driven by God as we exposit the text. Now, speaking of that, um, there have been a lot of interesting things that have been happening in the evangelical world over the last six months. Um, as of this weekend, for example, uh, Joshua Harris, that was a few months ago, Joshua Harris is not a Christian, but Kanye West is a Christian. And so the, we see a lot's been happening in the evangelical world. And, and what I mean by that is, over the last six months, some of what we might call uh, celebrities of the faith have said, I'm out. I'm out. I'm no longer a Christian. And some of those people that are celebrities in the world have said, you know what? I'm in. I, I belong to Jesus. And what I've seen as I've observed this take place is a couple of, a lot of responses really, but a couple of different responses have surfaced, have been, I guess, the most uh, prevalent. And one of those is the people who are coming forth say, look, about these celebrity Christians and conversions, look, don't believe it. Don't believe it. It's not true. You just wait. Which I think is actually a dangerous way to respond because God can save whoever he wants to save, can he? Kanye West doesn't stand a chance against God if God has Kanye in his sights. And so there are those people who are saying, look, you know, don't believe it, you just wait, it'll all, we'll, it'll all you know, uh, uh, come to bear in the end that these people aren't really Christians. And then the other response that I've seen that, that's uh, taken place, and, and, and that is those people who have said, well, look, if this person can turn away from the faith, if this person, this, this well-known pastor, theologian, author like Joshua Harris, this, this Christian songwriter like Marty Sampson, if this person can turn away from the faith, then what about me? How do I know that, that my faith is secure? How do I know that I'll actually make it until the end? How do I know that I'll remain as one of Christ's followers? Well, it's a completely, I think, understandable response when you see somebody who, for example, has written Christian songs for years and says, you know what, I'm not really sure I buy any of this, or someone who's actually, who's actually preached at conferences that have 10,000 people and written books that have sold hundreds of thousands of copies, when they say, I'm out, it's an understandable response for us to say, well, at least to wonder, like, how does a person stay in? And what about me? Well, thankfully, Jesus anticipates and addresses this question in the passage we're in this morning. Uh, John chapter 10, we're going to cover verses 22 uh, through 42. Let me begin by reading verses 22 through 31. The word of the Lord reads this way. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who, is, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And look at their response. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So it's, it's festival time again in Jerusalem. Now we, we've seen that the uh, Jewish community had a number of, of major festivals uh, during which they celebrated the Lord's faithfulness, usually by some very tactile reminders. And it was well, we saw a few weeks ago when Jesus delivered his bread of life speech that it was the fall, and now it's winter, and it's time for the Feast of Dedication. It's also uh, known as Hanukkah. You'll see it on your, your calendars as Hanukkah. Um, it's winter, which means it's cold in Jerusalem. And so Jesus, uh, presumably as a way to stay warm, he's walking and talking He's, he's preaching while he's on the move, and once again, he encounters the religious leaders who have a major issue with him. This is actually the third time we've seen the religious folks get so angry at Jesus that they actually prepare for violence. And each time, why do they do that? It's a direct result of Jesus' claim to be God. A few chapters ago in John 8, we, we, we read where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was, which would have been incredible enough. But he says, before Abraham was, I am. He's invoking the divine name. He's saying that I am the great I am. I am the God of the Old Testament. When Jesus says that, it's like nails on the chalkboard to the Pharisees. They can't stand it. Now, you go back a little bit further in John chapter 5. Jesus calls God his Father, and Jesus makes himself equal with God. So Jesus has not been coy about who he is. He's been very direct with the religious leaders. But they say to him, look, just tell us plainly. We've been asking you this question. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Mashiach, the coming deliverer and rescuer, just tell us. And Jesus says, I've already told you. But you don't believe. And then in that sort of mic drop moment, Jesus says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. You can't get any more direct than that. Jesus claims to be one with the Father. Now, Jesus and God the Father are not the same person. Otherwise, it would make no sense that we read elsewhere, Jesus prays to the Father. Jesus, we're told, does the will of the Father. There is a distinction there. But Jesus is perfectly one with the Father in that he is of the same nature and essence of the Father. Three persons, one substance, power, and eternity, to quote the Westminster Confession. But the, but the religious leaders, they don't believe this. They don't believe what Jesus says, and we'll see why in a minute the truth keeps escaping them. But there is something. There is something that they get right, and I don't want to, I don't want to rush past this. There's something that, despite their anger and their vitriol and their, their, their preparations for violence, there's something that the religious leaders get right. And it's this, our first point this morning. The claims of Jesus cannot be ignored. Now, I say that because, I believe it flows right out of the text, but I say that because we live in North Alabama where everybody says they love Jesus. I've, never t I've not talked to one person in a year and a half who's had anything bad to say about Jesus. And I've tried to start up conversations with 
my insurance agent and, and just yesterday with a guy that I played ball with at the gym, and no one has anything bad to say about Jesus. Everybody, it seems, loves Jesus. They appreciate him, his integrity, uh, some even value his teaching. Um, nobody's mad at him. But not everyone centers their lives around him. Not everyone, of course, worships him. Not everyone embraces his body, the church. I can't tell you the number of people that I've talked to that have said, yeah, I've been a Christian for all these years, and we get a little further in the discussion, and they say, well, I haven't been to church in decades. A lot of people say they love Jesus, but they don't love the body of Christ, the church. And certainly not everyone is trusting in him alone for their salvation. We've seen that the claims of Jesus in the first century were met with outrage and violence. And that actually would be the case uh, for the centuries that would follow Jesus. And even it's the case in many places today. But in our context, they're met pretty much with what I would call, in many cases, a warm indifference. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm cool with Jesus. I like Jesus. I respect him. Or maybe we could even say they're met with a sentimentality that could easily make Jesus sort of the lead character in a Hallmark movie. He's just so polite. Not really, actually. Not really. In his book, God in the Wasteland, David Wells says that one of the defining marks of our times is that God has become weightless, unimportant. We pushed him to the periphery of our lives and even our worship. Wells says, God rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He's less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than our appetites for affluence and influence. And his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And yet here in this context, at this festival, the religious leaders have Jesus standing in front of them, the, the one who claims to be the very I am, the one who claims to be equal with God. And of course, they're outraged. They're not indifferent. And here we are this very moment with Jesus very much with us. And the question is, how do we regard him? Even though we may be intrigued by him and maybe we even think good thoughts about him, perhaps we're even moved by the worship of him. But are we still confronted by the radical nature of his claims? Now, where do his claims confront us in the most radical ways, in the most shocking ways? Certainly in what he says about what we love. He says that if we don't love him more than our own children, more than our own parents, more than our own friends, then we're not worthy of him. I mean, that's pretty radical, isn't it? We've got to love Jesus more than our own biological family. Maybe his claims confront us in the most shocking ways when he talks about what our authority is. Who actually in our lives determines what's right and wrong? Is it based on some feelings that we have? Is it based on something we've read? Is it based on what we just believe should be right? Or is the word of Christ really our authority? Maybe his words confront us in the most shocking ways in what he talks about our identity. That is to say, we're not, first of all, uh, it's not, uh, first of all, about what we do for a living or who we're connected to or who we're married to or what sort of clearance we have. It's actually, first of all, about are we in Christ? Do we belong to Him? Maybe His claims are most shocking when we consider the way that we actually are reconciled with God. 
Because I think we tend to believe, and in fact, everywhere we turn, everything we, we read screams, if you want to have something, you have to earn it. If you want something, you have to work for it. In fact, we take great pride in that. I don't want a handout, we say. I said this myself. I don't want something for nothing. I want to work for it. And then Jesus comes along and says, the forgiveness of God is actually free. And says, the more you try to earn it, the more actually you ruin the whole equation. It's pretty shocking stuff. Now, of course, the salvation that is free to us came at great cost to Jesus. He surrendered his life willingly, as we saw last week, so that, he could be, so that we could be totally and completely forgiven. He died on the cross so that by believing in him, our sins, even the ones we love, even the ones we hate, would never be held against us. Here we are, uh, self-loving, self-glorifying people pursuing our own interests, sinners from the moment we arrive. But Christ died for sinners. He took the punishment that we deserve. He endured the wrath of God so that we could be spared. Because the price of our sin was so great, only God could actually pay it. But Jesus says He's equal with the Father. He is God. These sorts of claims cannot be ignored. Again, Jesus' audience here, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of things, but they're not apathetic. They're not indifferent. They realize that Jesus' claims cannot be ignored, but despite all their education, despite all their tradition, despite all their connections, they still couldn't believe. Now, why is that? Well, why couldn't they believe? Jesus says, even though the works that I do bear witness about me, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. Jesus makes it clear. They don't know Jesus. Why? Because they don't belong to him. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give them eternal life. Why do Jesus' sheep hear his voice? Because he knows them. Because he has given them eternal life. Because he has chosen them. In fact, this theme actually runs throughout John's Gospel. John 13, Jesus says, I know those I have chosen. John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Do you see how salvation is all the work of God from beginning to end? Salvation is actually God choosing before we are even born to, to locate His love on us, to pour His love on us in such a way that He says that one is mine. And he enables those he chooses, his chosen sheep, to hear his voice and respond to him in faith. Those that he knows, those who belong to him, those who are his sheep, he enables to believe. Now, what does this recognition do for us? Well, certainly, first of all, it humbles us. Because we understand that, if we understand that salvation is totally and completely a gift, it takes away any ability on our part to brag or boast or to say to anyone else, at least I got it, right? At least I had the spiritual insight. You can't brag if you did nothing. still remember coaching my boys in upward basketball some 12, 15 years ago. And I remember this one game where Luke was eight years old. And uh, he was just, he was the most dominant player in the league. He just was torching everybody. And I even brought a picture to show you. It's just so cute. Uh, show that picture. Look at that. Isn't that so good? I just, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. Uh, but he's, but he's, he scores, so he scores 20, 26 of the team's 28 points. 
And after the game, we, we beat this other team. And after the game, there was this little kid. His name was Cordarius. He was just the sweetest kid. Cordarius is, now remember these kids are eight years old, right? He's jumping up and down. He's so excited. He's like, we just crushed them. They couldn't hang with us. We killed them. We... And Cordarius' mom just put her arm uh, around her son. And she said, honey, you know how much I love you. But she said, you can't brag. You didn't do anything. Luke scored all the points. Like, why are you, getting so, why are you just putting in their face? You didn't do anything. Now, that analogy breaks down about a thousand levels, right? I mean, it's really just an excuse for me to show a picture of my son. But, you know, I, I was thinking about that. And, and the thing is, if we don't do anything, if there's nothing we have accomplished, then there's nothing about which we can brag. And so we, when we start to understand that salvation is completely and totally of God from beginning to end, it means that we, there's nothing we can boast of. It, it must necessarily lead to humility. Now, the other thing this does, a number of things this realization does, is it, it encourages us in our evangelism. Because if we believe that it's really up to us and our persuasion and our skill and our wording to bring someone to faith, then that puts a lot of pressure on us, doesn't it? Because we think, oh man, I've got I to gotta say it right, and I've got the right tone, and I've got to do right whatever. But if we realize that salvation is actually a work of God, that He brings about salvation, then it really encourages us in our evangelism because God may use, we may say it, and we may totally blow it, and we may really mess up, and God may use that very conversation to bring someone to saving faith. Because He's the one who, He's the author and giver of new life. Now, another thing that this realization does is that, that God does us all is it, it enriches our worship of Him. To know that salvation is totally from, from God. It would be, it's a lot less uh, enthusiastic. We would be a lot less enthusiastic to worship a God that, you know, sort of partners with us when he sees the good in us or whatever it is. But when we consider that this God plucked us from our wandering. He rescued us from our rebellion. He made us his very own by giving us faith. That actually leads to worship very important to recognize who does what in our salvation. Namely, that God does it all and we do nothing. Uh, Martin Luther uh, says this about the, this, these deliberations. He says, it's not irreligious, idle or superfluous, but in the highest degree wholesome and necessary for the Christian to know whether or not his will has anything to do in matters pertaining to salvation. If I'm ignorant of God's works and power, I cannot worship, praise, give thanks, or serve Him, for I do not know how much I should attribute to myself and how much to Him. We need, therefore, to have in mind a clear-cut distinction between God's power and ours and God's work and ours. So understanding that salvation is all from God actually enriches our worship, and I think it certainly comforts us, doesn't it? It certainly comforts us. How, how assuring is it to know that the God who created the universe uh, and saved us will actually keep us until the end? Those who have been chosen by God, Jesus says in verse 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is not simply the mover and shaker at the beginning of our Christian life. Jesus is the mover and shaker today. Right now, Jesus is the one who is active in you. He's the one keeping you and me going another, Christian, another day in the Christian life. He's the one making sure we will make it finally to our destination. 
It's kind of like if you ever, and I think the closest location to this is in Memphis, but there's a, there's a, a group of vacation spots in the, in the country called Go, Go Ape. Ever heard of this? And what it is, is it's a, they're obstacle courses where you can take your family and, and you have a, a variety of skill levels and, and risk, or not risk really, none of it's risky, but in terms of the, just how scary it is. There's one in Memphis, one in Raleigh, one in Indianapolis. And, and one of the, 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 the main activities, the most popular activity at the, the Go Ape um, sort of obstacle course is called the Treetop Journey. And uh, what happens is in the treetop journey is you walk along these narrow swinging boards, 30 feet in the air, suspended between uh, two trees. Here's what it looks like. You're, you're actually walking along on these planks. And, you know, you, 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 they, of course, they tell you not to look down, but how are you not going to look down? And so you're kind of going along uh, and, you know, you're scared to death. It's a terrifying thing. When you're walking at every moment, what you feel like is, because all you're doing, you're holding on to these, these wires. You feel like, I could crash down at any moment. This could very well be the end for me. So you're walking along. Um, it's terrifying. But the reality is, you're actually connected by a steel cable, which is anchored to a secure superstructure above you. So you feel totally insecure. But the truth is, there's nothing that could really happen to you. Because even if you take a misstep, and you miss one of those boards, you're still connected by, by way of the steel cable to the superstructure. And this is the way that I think it is in the Christian life. You know, we're walking along on this Christian journey, and there are times we feel like, I don't know if I can make it another step. I don't know. I don't feel secure. I feel like my faith is weak. I feel like I could plummet to the ground at any time. But the reality is Jesus is holding us and he will not let us go. And if that's not reassuring enough, Jesus goes further in the very next verse. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. If you are in Christ this morning, this is so, so good. If you are in Christ this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are a gift from the Father to the Son. You're a gift. It may seem like your Christian life began when you made a decision or you invited Jesus into your heart or whatever, but actually your salvation began with the Father loving the Son for all eternity and giving Him a gift of a people forever. The question is not really, can I lose my salvation? That's not the question. The question is, can Jesus hold on to what has been given to him by the Father? And the answer, the overall witness of Scripture, the testimony of Jesus himself is a resounding yes. It's a resounding yes. Now there's an interesting Greek construction here, and we don't get into the Greek language a lot, but this is, to me this is kind of fascinating. It's, it's a double negative in the subjunctive mood, and what it means, it's kind of clunky in the way that it reads, but... It literally reads, uh, in fact, uh, let me look at it here in verse uh, 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And this double negative literally reads, and they will never, ever, ever perish. Never, ever perish. You thought Taylor Swift was the first to use that phrase. We're never, ever getting back together. But Taylor stole that from Jesus. She just didn't know that, but she stole that from Jesus. 
Jesus says, those that the Father gives me, they will never, ever, ever perish. Never perish. There's nothing that can happen to those who belong to Jesus. A couple of weeks ago on Sunday afternoon, I met with our senior adults um, on, on, uh, in the afternoon for a hymn sing. And uh, it was, I love our senior adults. They're, they're so much fun. In fact, I just walked in the door. One of them said, hey, can I drive your Jeep? I was like, are you serious right now? Yeah, let me drive your Jeep. I'm like, okay, just, you know, don't hit any trees with it, please. Um, so, you know, the, the, comes back and we sit together. We have this hymn sing. We, we sang, I don't know, four or five hymns together. And, and then I share with them when I was growing up, we had, uh, we had church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And occasionally on Wednesday night, we would have what was known as request hour. So I don't know if it's because the, um, the pastor didn't have time to prepare anything or if this was scheduled in advance, but we would have request hour. And so the music director would ask for requests and somebody would raise their hand. And every single time, every single week, there was this little elderly lady named Helen. And she was always the first to raise her hand. Hymn number 308, she would say, love lifted me. Some of you remember that. So we would sing that every week. We started with Love Lifted Me. Uh, and, and we would sing all you know, these hymns together. And, and then sometimes before the hymns, the music director would read uh, a hymn history. So we'd kind of share how that, what were the circumstances surrounding the writing of that hymn and you know, what was going on in the life of the writer and so on. And some of it was really boring as a teenager. Some of it was pretty fascinating. But he would share those hymns. And, and one of the things that was pointed out is that Many of the hymns, and even the songs we sing today, uh, are inspired by, are based on very specific statements in the Scripture, very specific lines. For example, there's a, there's a great line in Martin Luther's uh, hymn, A Mighty Fortress, where it says, One little word, word shall fell him. And that goes all the way back to Matthew chapter 8, where uh, there are these two demon-possessed uh, men who are just terrorizing the whole community and everybody's afraid of them and no one will go near them and, and Jesus goes up to them and he just says one word to the, he just says one word to the demons go and they go and they disappear and they haunt nobody again and so that, 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 uh, that line in Martin Luther's song is based on that particular passage well there are a few lines that we sing here at Capshaw that come directly from this statement that I just read by Jesus and before the throne above, we sing, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's right out of John 10. And then the song we sang last week, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at, at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Same, same passage. It comes right out of John 10. Right out of the words of Jesus. The passage itself is one of the most beautiful and encouraging sections in the Scripture especially given our ups and downs as believers. Have you ever sinned against God and thought, how could I be so stupid to do the same thing again? How could I be so dumb? How could I be so weak to do the same thing again? I've, I've thought that a thousand times. The pressures of this life can be enormous. The temptations of this life can be powerful. We have stress at every turn, work-related pressure, stress at home, relational conflict, those stressors that are part of our relationships. Again, there are times when it feels like we just cannot make the right decision, but instead we fall back into the same old ways again. Well, here's the beautiful reassurance of Jesus. 
Your spiritual success, so to speak, is not based on your faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of God who promises you, if you are in Christ, you will make it till the end because He will cause it to be so. Here's our second point. In a world of unevenness and uncertainty, your salvation is secure in Christ because the triune God will keep you for Himself. This keeping of His own that God promises is a real Trinitarian endeavor. If you're in Christ, your, your salvation is so secure that you can't even lose it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, the Apostle says. Not things above, not things below, not dying, not even living. You say, well, what about all those warning passages? No, th- those, are, those are legit passages. Those are serious warnings that we need to consider with sobriety. They should drive us to greater dependence upon God, greater reliance on His Spirit. So we don't take those lightly. If it were up to us, we would undoubtedly give up. If it were up to us, we would undoubtedly lose our salvation. But the Father, by His Spirit, makes us willing and able to live till the end. And Christ the Son will keep us to Himself. Now what about those who say... What about those that you mentioned at the beginning? Those very prominent leaders who have fallen away. The Joshua Harris's of the world, the Marty Sampson's, whoever. What I would say about that is, if they're truly in Christ, God will bring them back to Himself. The Lord disciplines those He loves. He will bring them back to Himself. And if they are resolved, if they, they continue in their rebellion, their apostasy, it will simply give evidence that they never really belonged to Him to begin with. They were never really trusting in Him. Maybe they were trusting in their books. Maybe they were trusting in their songwriting ability. Maybe they were trusting in their ability. Whatever it was, they were never really trusting in Him. Because those whom the Father gives the Son, the Son never loses. New Testament scholar Leon Morris says it so beautifully. It is one of the most, it is one of the precious things about the Christian faith that our assurance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on Christ but on His firm grip on us. And the fact that we are loved by God with a love that will never fail gives us hope, comfort, and confidence. In the grip of God's all-powerful hands, we can live with boldness. Now look at this next section. We'll cover it a little more quickly. Verses 31 through 42. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works for my Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So here we are again, 
the religious leaders again want to kill Jesus. Now this, as I mentioned, this is a theme that comes up over and over. It's run throughout John's Gospel. Jesus claims deity, equality with God the Father, and the Jews say, this man must die. And this time, they circle around him, they pick up stones to execute him. They're ready. They're ready to kill him. We can hardly imagine a situation more frightening or a crisis more acute. Imagine staring at a group of people holding large rocks that they're, they're ready to throw at you and will keep throwing at you until they watch you breathe your last breath. This is a horrifying scene. But notice how Jesus responds. Very calmly. First by asking them a question over what specific work are you going to kill me. They say, look, it's not really so much about what you've been doing. It's about what you've been saying. You are making yourself one with God. And what does Jesus do? He quotes the scriptures. Now we say we want to live like Jesus. We say we want to do what Jesus did. You know, what would Jesus do and so on. But I wonder what we would do if someone were pointing a gun at us, threatening to kill us. Would the word of God be on your mind? When you're so terrified that every reasonable thought has escaped you, would the scriptures pop in your head? Someone held a gun to my head, I'd probably be thinking, what physical move should I collapse? Should I charge? Should I, you know, what should I do? Drop? What, what physical move could I do that would best guarantee that I would still keep my life? And I've, I don't know why I've thought about this a bizarre amount of times, but like I've, I've thought like if you run in a zigzag pattern, could someone still shoot you? I don't know. I'm sure that there's been studies done on this, but I've thought if, if someone were holding a gun to my head, there are a lot of things I would be thinking. I don't know if the first thing that would pop in my head would be the scriptures. But for Jesus, the scriptures were so central to his thoughts and his life that at this moment, this crucial, this, this crucial moment in his life, this critical occasion, what came to his mind was the word of God and specifically Psalm 82. Psalm 82, 6 reads, I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Now, there's some debate as to whom God is speaking in this psalm. But rabbis regarded humans, especially the judges, the ancient judges, as sort of figurative gods, small g gods who would, who, who would speak for the capital G God. The ones who are called gods here are the judges of Israel. And the reason they're called gods in Psalm 82 is because the judges represented God as his justices, the ones who would mete out his very just verdicts. And Jesus says, if you call the judges gods, to whom the word of God came, because they exercised God's authority and indeed spoke for God, then what should you call the one who has been sent by God and indeed given unique authority to judge the entire world? Not just a certain precinct. What should you call the one who's given the authority to judge the whole world? And Jesus here, he claims to be the divine judge. And we can't, there's a, there's a rabbinical way of arguing that would take too long to really get into. So we don't fully understand Jesus' reasoning, but this much is clear. Jesus' first defense against criticism and against threat was the word of God. He says in verse 35, and scripture cannot be broken. In other words, it's all true. It's all self-evidently true. It's all reliable. This little parenthetical that seems so easy to gloss over, the scripture cannot be broken, 
shows just how high Jesus viewed the Hebrew Scriptures. He viewed the Scriptures as not only authoritative and sufficient, but foundational for His own life and practice. And if Jesus found His comfort in the Scriptures, how much more should we? Here's our final point this morning. Our assurance of God's hold on us is strengthened by our confidence in and commitment to the Scriptures. The more we take in this incredible story of God's love for us centered on Christ, the more that we, we, we take it in, the more that we read it, the more that we, we understand it, the more that we study it, the more our confidence in God's faithfulness is bolstered. The more we doubt the authority of God's Word, the more that we approach it as a critic instead of someone who seeks to learn and submit, the more that our assurance wavers, the more that our confidence is shaken. The point of this passage is that we should be like, much like the lion cub. Yes, we are frail and we are weak and we often wander down the wrong path, but our security, our strength comes from the strength of another. And therefore, we can rest in that strength. Now, let me close with this. I, I, I heard this recently. I found this to be so powerful. There's a a Scottish pastor in the late 1800s. His name was John Brown, and he visited an elder lady in his congregation who was on her deathbed. I mean, she's, she's just about ready to die. She has hours left to live, if that. And John Brown, the Scottish pastor, he goes to her. He, he's sitting next to her at her bedside. Again, her, her life is, is, it looks like it's, it's diminishing and he says to her, what would you say if after all he's done for you, God would let you perish in hell? Now, for those of you who are into counseling, this is not like even in the top 10 most sensitive things to say. So I would not, don't write this down and say, yeah, I've got to use that. This is not, uh, it's not what you want to say. But, but he knew his congregation, he knew this lady. So he said to her, what would, what would you say if after all he's done for you, God would let you perish in hell. And I love this lady's response. She says, well, if God did let me perish, I reckon he would lose more than I would. I would lose my soul, but he would lose his honor. For he has said, no one will snatch them out of my hand. He loves us. He will not let us go, not because we're so good, not because we're worthy, but because He is a faithful God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, remind us this morning by Your Word and through Your Spirit that our worth is not in what we own, it's not in what we have done, it's not in who our parents are, it's not in anything we've accomplished. Our worth is inextricably tied to the cross work of your Son, our union with Him, our identity as those who belong to the Good Shepherd. Lord, will you help us to believe it this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.